Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Graham Tomlin, Bishop of Kensington in London. Graham Tomlin, welcome to Facing the Canon. John, lovely to see you today. And Good you to too. Always a delight to see you, Graham. You're a bishop in the Church of England. I am indeed. Yeah. You are. Where are you a bishop? Uh, well, I'm the Bishop of Kensington, which um, is uh, basically the, the area that I cover is a part of West London that goes from um, Knightsbridge, Harrods at one end, uh, all the way to Staines at the other end and everything in between. So um, that's the, the bit that I cover. It's about 800,000 people live in the area, about 90 odd different um, parishes. And so uh, it's a great part of London to be part Absolutely. of. Absolutely. In your diocese or your area, uh, the Grenfell Tower, um, you were you involved in the sense of trying to do what you could as a result of that. I, I drove past it actually last Sunday yeah. and it's still there. Yeah, very much. Uh, so. what's, the, what's the future of the building, Graeme? Do, uh, do you know anything? Well, the building is still standing and uh, there's a lot of feeling locally that uh, in some ways it needs to stay standing until there's some kind of resolution of the ongoing issues, both within that community and more widely about issues like cladding across the, the, the country. I think there's a fear locally that if it's taken away, somehow the thing will be brushed under the carpet yes. and some of the issues that Grenfell raised uh, will not be dealt with. And so as a result, and there's been a quite a careful um, management of the building and it still, there's a, there's a whole team of people working on that building to keep it um, to keep it as safe as it can be. There's, there's the covering around it. So I imagine it will stay for some time. Uh, there is a memorial commission uh, that has been set up to think about what replaces it eventually, because of course it can't stay there forever. Uh, hopefully, they'll, be, they'll if with the inquiry uh, reports and there is some form of resolution that brings a little bit of, um, never closure, but a little, at least a little bit of resolution to the situation. It may be possible to take the building down and then some memorial garden or something will be will be produced uh, sure. uh, on on that site. Um, so yeah, it's still an ongoing. Um, in some ways, the, 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 that building symbolises something quite important, and which is quite important why it doesn't come down right now, yes. because there are still issues that need to be addressed that Grenfell raised for our society and, and, and community. And what was the church able to do um, for the families uh, that lost loved ones and for the, the families that lost their homes? What, what did the church do? Well, on the day of the fire, I, I found out about it first thing in the morning when I woke up and there was a little tweet on my phone from a radio station saying would I you know, report on the fire and um, uh, I thought what, what fire of course and then I yes. went online found out where it was realised that it was in one of the parishes I was responsible for so I went up to, um, to North Kensington on the day I uh, spent most of that day you know at the base of the tower actually we were some of the few people allowed into the uh, the area around the tower, talking to firefighters and emergency services going in and out, but also part of the day in the local parish church, yes. which very quickly became a kind of depot for gifts and uh, volunteers and people who had been evacuated from their homes and so on. And I think what the church was able to do was because we as the Christian church, not just that particular church, but a number of churches around that area, because we had buildings and we had people on site that had spent time investing in that community, were known in that community and trusted. Uh, we were able to, if you like, provide a, a, a degree of emergency relief 
that others found it difficult yes. to provide. So the council came in, but because the council in that part of London isn't trusted quite as well as other bodies, there was a bit of suspicion about the help offered there. But because the, the church, alongside other religious communities yes. as well, because we had a presence there, people could go to the church, the doors were open, we have a building where we could... We could um, we didn't have to kind of muster some great resources and then a week or two later on come in and help. We were there at the site yes. on the day. So, you know, the local vicar literally opened the doors at three o'clock in the morning and people started coming in. That's amazing. And so the church being, you know, it struck me about the importance of, of local churches being present in every community across this country. Whenever a disaster like that happens, it happens in someone's patch, yeah. in someone's parish, next to door to someone's church. And that church is there ready to respond and it spoke to me a little bit about kind of our readiness to respond to whatever human need emerges at any particular time. You never quite know when something like that's no, going to happen. No. Um, uh, last century, um, there was a, a coal mining accident in Wales, uh, Abavan. Yep. And in Punch magazine, the title of their article was God is Dead. Um, saying, well, why did he allow that to happen? Um, how do you answer questions like that? You know, that a fire started in someone's yeah. fridge, yeah. you know, on whatever floor it was. And, you know, wh why did God allow that? It's so no, funny. I was asked that very question uh, at the time. I remember going in to do a, I did a lot of TV media work yes. at the time. And I remember going in to do one interview on the top of a pub nearby to Grenfell Tower. And I was coming down through the pub afterwards and I was wearing my collar and everything else. And um, someone called out to me, hey, father, come over here, you know. So I went, I went over and we started having a chat and he said, well, you know, how do you, how do you explain this then? You know, this God do you believe in? You know, how can you believe in a God when something like this happens? And um, so I, you know, put on the spot and I had to kind of respond. And I suppose my, my you know, you could go into all kinds of philosophical sure. answers to that. But I think my, my response at the time was, well, I mean, in one sense, I can't give you an answer. And if I were to go into the philosophical answer, I would say something like this, that actually the, the nature of evil is that it has no purpose. It yeah. has no point. So you can't ask the question, what, what point is it, does this have? Is there a reason for it? Because there is no reason for it, because evil is in its very nature irrational. But I think that's not the answer to give at the time. I think no. the answer I gave at the time was simply that, look, you know, I can't tell you exactly why this happens, but what I do know is that if I didn't believe in God, I wouldn't have any hope that things could ever get any better or yes. any different. Yes. And actually what my faith in God brings me is a sense that something can change, that people's lives can be redeemed, that, that things like this are not the final word, that, that the final word is not death and fire and disaster and, 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 and um, despair. The final word is life and hope yeah. and grace and mercy. And that's what keeps me going during a time like this. And actually, interestingly enough, I found at the time, I didn't find many people whose faith was destroyed by no. the fire. In fact, if anything, people turned towards their faith. Yes, because they lean on him, don't they? they? Do. Exactly. When you yes. are really going through the mill, very often what you, you, you reach out for a source of hope. Yeah. And the thing about faith, the thing about God, especially the God of Jesus Christ, gives you hope at a time when actually, where else are you going to find it? Yes. So I, I really like that, Graham, actually, that, yeah, uh, the reason I believe and know God is that I do have hope. It yeah. gives me hope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've got a, a new book out and it's a very clever uh, title because it's got words that uh, are crossed out. Yeah. So the title is Being Yourself. And it's interesting that the crossed out words, you're drawn to them, aren't you? You're like, well, well what are the crossed out words? You know, so the original title was Why Being Yourself? 
is a bad idea, but then of course it's being yourself. So what is that about?、Mm. Well, it's a book that、um, emerged out of. I think the, the, the sparks of it began in a conversation I had. I was at a, I think it was a wedding or a baptism or something, and I was talking to some friends of our of our daughter.、Uh, he, you know, people who were at university with her.、Yes. They were. They were kind of young, intelligent, bright people, and I was thinking about how different it was from talking to people, you know, when I was their age. You know, I, I was, I was in, you know, when you and I were that sort of age. You know, we back in the nineteen eighties,、yes. it was the time of Margaret Thatcher. Everybody wanted to make money. It was all about materialism and so on. It struck me how different、um, this generation was. This were these were people who were、um, quite sad. They weren't that interested in money. They were interested in, interested in experiences. They want to travel the world. They were quite spiritual. They do mindfulness. They do yoga. Um, they were、um, people who were very idealistic. They wanted to change the world. They wanted jobs that weren't just going to earn them lots of money, but they wanted to do something that was significant. But yet, Christian faith was something right off the off the scale for them. Just had no inclination that this would be anything that they could take seriously. And、um, so I began to think: How would you present the Christian faith in a way that makes sense? Yes. To people like that. So in some ways, the book is primarily written for people like that outside the church. And、um, it's it's trying to say how would you explain the Christian faith in a way that might make sense to someone like that? And it, it starts off with the idea of、um, how do we talk about ourselves these days?、Uh, very often you go into bookshops and you'll find titles like you know learning to love yourself, yes, or,、um, you know how to be yourself, or you know valuing the the the, the, the genius that you that in, inside. Yes, that's right. Yeah, motivational. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, we talk about、um, you know discovering ourselves or being ourselves or finding ourselves or whatever.、Um, and I was thinking a little bit about、um, you know what's the advice we often give. Say you know, say if there's a teenager comes to you and they're going out on a date with a friend. Uh, you know, they want to impress them, or maybe someone you're going to a job interview, and and, and you and、uh, you, you know, what do I do? And the advice we often give is, oh, it's all right, just be yourself. Yeah. And I suppose the more I've thought about that, the more the more confusing that advice is, because actually, when you think about it, the advice to be yourself isn't actually as straightforward as we think it might be. I think for a number of reasons. I mean, number one, because you know. Who is this self that I'm supposed to be? Yes. Very often, when you want to impress someone, whether it's someone you're going on a date with or someone you're applying for a job for, the last thing you want them to know is actually what's really going on inside your head or your heart. You don't want them to know about the anxieties and、no. the fears and the doubts and the jealousies and the lusts that are going on there. So we, what we do is we present a very sanitized version of ourselves to them. And so、um, this, this being ourselves isn't quite as straightforward because there's there's a part of ourselves that we do like to project. There's a part of ourselves that we actually want to hide, and we don't want to、uh, get. Actually, we we don't want to sort of you know present out there.、Um, and in any case, the other thing I think is that、um, that strikes me that this advice to be yourself focuses upon ourselves. And when you meet someone who is only thinking about themselves, they're not usually a very attractive person to no, meet. No, the people you really enjoy meeting are the people who are interested in you. Yes, they're not thinking about themselves. Am I being myself? They're actually really genuinely interested in you as a person. And so I began to think this idea of being yourself actually focuses attention in the wrong area. There's a little statement that Martin Luther makes,、um, where he describes the human、yes. condition, and he says. Uh, the problem with the human condition is the heart curved in upon itself. In itself, yes. And you know, it's like this. And actually, this whole being yourself idea does that. It curves us in upon ourselves. And actually, what we really need is to be opened out towards God and towards our neighbour. And so that's basically the idea at the heart of the book. That actually, this focus upon ourselves,、um, which has been going on for the last few hundred years, we could talk about the cultural background to that. 
actually it draws attention in the wrong place. Actually, what we need is to be drawn out of ourselves in love towards God and love towards, towards our neighbour. And that is what the good life really is about. OK, so we've got, the words are crossed out and we're left with being yourself. There are many times, and I think I've been in situations where I would like to be myself, and I feel it's inappropriate. Yeah, sure. And, yeah. you know, there are certain constraints. And uh, so where, where, how can you be yourself and be authentic and, and truly be honest? And I, I, I find sometimes you know, in Church of England circles, I feel like oh, I can't be myself. Mm. Mm. Is that a bad thing? Mm. True. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's back to this question of, it's what I call in the book, the divide itself, that we are these confused creatures. Yes. St. Paul talks about the, the old self and the new self. The new self is sort of emerging and the old self has to be left behind. And there's a sense of which, you know, he talks about baptism as the sort of, you know, the transition point between the old self and the new self. Uh, I contrast that with, you know, all the language about being yourself, discovering yourself, finding yourself. What does Jesus say about the self? He actually says, deny yourself. That's really countercultural. Now, what does he mean by that? I think what he means by that is not abnegating the self, not destroying the self, but it's saying discovering a new self, which is the new self created for good works in Jesus Christ. And what that really means, I think, is, is discovering a new self, that self that is the beloved child of God, made in the particular way that he's made you and he's made me. And that the selves that we have are not so much to be discovered, but they're to be created. And one of the images I use in the book is, are we essentially artichokes or onions? Yes. So an artichoke is, is a you know, when a cook prepares an artichoke, they peel away the leaves and then you find this beautiful little sort of tasty morsel in, in, in the middle. And very often we think of ourselves as like that, that basically ourselves are some inner pure self that we have somewhere and if we took away the expectations of other people the demands others make upon us all those sort of pesky people who kind of expect us to do this that and the other we will find this this pure self inside but then what if actually we're not like artichokes we're actually like onions because the point of an onion is you take away the the layers and there's nothing in the middle yeah the onion is the layers in other words ourselves are not some pure inner inner sort of spark that we can that we suddenly discover from looking within, but they are actually the sum of what happens to us over our lives, the relationships we make, the commitments we enter into. Uh, that's what creates ourselves, and therefore um, the question, for example, of what we worship, what we give ourselves to, that's what shapes us. And so the question of what you worship is vital. So worship the best thing that you can possibly find. And for me, that is the God of Jesus Christ. Yes. And we become what we end up worshipping. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. That's right. There's a, there's a, there's a sense in the, the Bible, it talks about how, um, you know, what we shall be has not yet been revealed. Ourselves are still being created. And uh, as a culture, we've turned in upon ourselves. One of the philosophers that I refer to quite a lot yes. is a Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, yes. who talks about the subjective turn in modern culture, whereas in previous in the ancient world, people looked outside themselves for moral truth and for guidance to the stars or to the natural law or to God. Um, but, you know, since the last couple of hundred years, we've, we've looked inside ourselves for moral guidance. But yeah, me, myself and I. Yeah, exactly. So, so are we a very selfish society? 
Well, it's a, it's a mixture. We're not entirely a selfish society because I think back to this divided self idea that yes, as individuals, there's impulses in it, which are those good created impulses that long to connect with other people, to serve other people and to be, um, you know, to, to be altruistic, to reach out to others. But there are those self-centered, fearful uh, impulses within us that simply want to be to be protective and to, to, to guide and to look in, inwards and to find if you like, our, our, our secrets of life, not in our relationship with others, but in, but in ourselves. And I think that's true of ourselves as a culture as well. So we're not entirely a self-centered culture, but I think a lot of the rhetoric we, we talk about, this idea of being ourselves, this idea of that individualism of modern culture, uh, militates towards that kind of, um, you know, not in the direction of, a, uh, of an outward looking, um, you know, love for others and love for God, but more into that introspection, which actually doesn't really lead us no. anywhere. But there is an encouragement, isn't there, Graham? Uh, today, be yourself. Yeah. And it doesn't matter, you know, what other people think. You've got to be yourself, however you feel. Yeah. Um, and we're encouraging that a lot. Yeah. And, and nobody actually speaks against that because it almost feels politically incorrect to speak against that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what the, what the book is trying to do is to point out some of the some of the problems with that particular way of thinking. Yes, about that life is all about discovering yourself and being yourself. Because what it's saying is, it, it effectively what that does is it, it focuses a potential upon oneself. Where actually the the secret of life is learning not to be self obsessed, but actually to be interested in other people and so on. There's a, there's a chapter in it on wonder. Yes. And how wonder is the beginning of wisdom. Because one of the things about the experience of wonder, when you see something just amazing. You know, it's a, a fantastic view or you're in a concert and the music is just sublime or, you know, you watch a, a brilliant bit of sporting activity or whatever. The thing about those moments of wonder is they take you out of yourself. And you, for that moment, you're just not even conscious of yourself at all. You're just transfixed with the, the beauty of this thing you're looking at. And it seems to me that that is a real clue to what we're meant to sure. be about. In fact, the people you meet that are the most... Well, people I meet that are the most saintly people I've met are those people who are quite content within themselves, but they're so content within themselves that they have the space and time to be interested in me or in you. And um, whereas actually people who are just totally thinking about themselves all the time are really not very nice people to be with. No. And we can think of lots of examples of people like that in public life and in private life and people we know as well. So, so, I mean, this could have been called be your real self. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So yeah. how, how can we, Graham, become the real people that God created us to be? One of the deepest human needs that we have is the need to be loved. You know, if, if a child grows up knowing that they're loved, they, they will grow up a relatively secure child. If they don't feel they're loved, however much stuff they have, they won't grow up secure. So there's this deep need to be loved. And yet in Christian faith, we find this... This message, this word that tells us that the very heart of God is love. And Christian yes. faith is the only religion in the world that says that about yes. God. Only Christian faith can say that statement that we get in 1 John. God is love. Yeah. No other faith can say that in quite the same way. And so there's a kind of fit between those two things. Our deep need for love and this message we get through the God of Jesus Christ that God is love as we see in the face of Jesus. There's a whole chapter on you know, why the Big Bang has a face. Yeah. You know, what, yes. what is the power that brought this world into being? It's, it's, it's love. And how do we know that? Because we see it in the face of Jesus Christ. And so I think how, do, how we grow into this is by 
learning to open ourselves to the source of life and the source of love, which is God himself, the one yes. who created us and who brought this world into being. So, and by doing that, and by then beginning to, 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 to open ourselves to one another. And the last two chapters in the book, really, one is about prayer, uh, and, the one, and the, second, the last one is about the church. Yeah. Now, it sounds rather ordinary, prayer and church. They sound pretty standard things. But it's kind of saying prayer is the way in which we begin to open ourselves out to God. We open up the sort of dark places of our lives. The chapter is actually called Why Praying is Dangerous. Yeah. Because once you start praying, you start allowing God into the dark places of your, your life. But it also is going to change you. If you pray seriously, it will change you. It will take you out of yourself. Um, so prayer and then church, because what church yeah. does is it brings you into a relationship with a whole lot of people that you didn't choose. The whole point about church is you don't just do church with your friends. You do church with a whole lot of people. You didn't choose to be there. They happen to be there. They may annoy you like crazy, but they're the people that God has called you Absolutely. to be with. Church is a sort of schooling in learning how to love your neighbor. Yes. How to love God, even how to love your enemy sometimes. Yes, definitely. No, I really enjoyed those chapters on prayer and, and the church, uh, Graham, very much. And uh, yeah, I think there's so many misunderstandings people have about prayer and the church. You know, in prayer, we're not twisting the hand of God. We're holding the hand of God. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're not asking for our will to be done in heaven. We're asking exactly. for God's will yeah. in heaven to be done on earth. Yeah, yeah. And uh, many people today um, admire Jesus, love Jesus, want to follow Jesus, um, but they're not interested in the church. A bit disillusioned with the yep. church. Um, obviously, you're a bishop. You you oversee many churches. What would your encouragement be to the people who've either been hurt, yep. disillusioned by the church, and no longer want to be part of it? What would you say? I think I think I'd, I'd say that. I mean, the church always has been a mixed bag, and and I, most of our experiences of church, church can be the most incredible thing. Yeah, you can have moments of encounter with God. And with other people that just, oh, you know, the spine tingling, that sense of being in the presence of God, whether it's through sung worship or a sermon that speaks yes. directly to your heart or through, you know, sharing in Holy Communion, that sense of just intimacy with God. You know, it can be the most amazing place. You can have this spine tingling sense of the presence of God, but it can also be a pretty grim place when you watch Christians fighting on Twitter or arguing at the PCC yes. or the church council or or whatever it is over little scraps that don't seem to matter that much. It can be a pretty depressing place at the same time. But in a way, I think both are part of the point. Um, because the church is the, the bride of Christ. Yes. It is the dwelling place of the living God. So we're to expect to find God there, to find those amazing experiences. But at the same time, church is a place where it's meant to change you. You don't join a church because it's perfect. You join a church because it's the place of, of where, where you will find yourself you know, rubbing up against all kinds of imperfect people like you and me. So when I'm part of a church, I recognize that I've got all kinds of flaws that I bring to church, ways in which I damage other people, in which I, you know, I may annoy other people and other people will annoy me. But actually, that's part of the learning. It's part of the shaping that goes on because um, church is a place that changes us, that in which God is changing us and growing us into our true selves. And that can't happen without, if you like, the grit in the oyster that, that church often brings. You know, we, we love the pearl. But we don't really always like the grit. No. But the pearl doesn't come about without the grit. And so 
I think it's, in some ways, you know, a perfect church would, would not be good, not be ideal to join. It is the old thing, isn't it? You know, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because yes. you'll spoil it. <laughs> yes. um, but that's not, that's not quite the point. If you find a perfect church, there's not much point in joining it because it, you won't grow through it. And actually, we grow through precisely the difficulties we find in relationships. It strikes me how often the New Testament, when it talks about the qualities you need in church, talks about things like humility, kindness, patience, gentleness. Now, why do you need those things in church? Well, you need humility um, because actually there's a lot of pride around in church. And yes. Actually, you need to learn humility. You need patience because there will be people who try your patience. Uh, you need gentleness because actually that's what heals difficult relationships. And so uh, because church is a place that is meant to be somewhere which changes us and enables us to grow into our true selves in Christ, in some ways the difficulties of church are part of the point. So you would encourage people who've been hurt, disappointed, just find another church, maybe? I mean, there are times when the hurts go so deep that it's very hard to continue in a, in a particular fellowship. And that's why it's important to realise that the church is wider than just one particular individual yes. local sort of instance of church. And uh, there may be times when it's right to move on. One wants to do that as the kind of last resort, as it were. You want to sort of stick with something where you can. But um, I think it's, it's yeah, and it may sometimes be right to give up on a particular church, but I never think it's right to give up on the church, no. yeah. um, the whole church of God. And, um, uh, and that's not to expect you'll find some perfect church somewhere, because you won't. Yes. But to find a place where you can find a sense of welcome, a sense of, um, uh, of, of acknowledgement of, yes, we're, we're an imperfect place, we get stuff wrong, but we're trying to do this together with God. And my sense would be that, yes, there are a lot of people, and I quite understand that sense of people feeling hurt and damaged by the church. Uh, but I would long that they would be able to find a, a fellowship that will, will, will enable the healing work of the Spirit uh, to carry Absolutely. on to do his work within, within them, as opposed to giving up on the church as a whole. I've always admired this about you, Graham. You know, um, you've got several degrees, you've got a doctorate, uh, but you're a learner. You, you, you keep learning. But that's the key, isn't it, Graham? Yeah. That we've just got to keep on learning. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what we need to develop more in the church. One of the things we're trying to do in the, in the Diocese of London is, is to instill much more of a culture of discipleship, which really is a culture of learning. Yes. That we never stop learning in the Christian faith. No. Um, and, uh, you know, we never think, okay, I've got this taped now. I've understood Christian faith. What's next? Now, there's always more depth to, to be gained. And that's, that's both an intellectual and a spiritual task as well. And because I think very often we have this, this slightly artificial division between theology and prayer, as if yes. they're two totally separate things. You know, theology is what you do when you read books or listen to lectures. Prayer is what you do when you're going to go to your room and you, and you pray like this. Actually, the two are intimately related because when you pray... Um, in the book, I, I talk about prayer as a kind of Christian mindfulness. You know, we talk about mindfulness a lot in our culture. Yes. And, and mindfulness is about being mindful of yourself and so on. But what Christian prayer does that's different from mindfulness is it, it makes... Mindfulness can be, in, in a secular context, quite a technique. A technique to kind of steal your soul and, to, and so on. But Christian mindfulness, Christian prayer is relational. It brings me into a relationship with God. But then the question is, if... If mindful prayer is about God being mindful of me, there's that bit in Psalm 8, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? Um, if it's about God being mindful of us and then us becoming mindful of God, it asks the question, well, who is this God yes. that we are to be mindful of? If prayer is a kind of becoming aware of the presence of God around you, who is this God? 
that brings you into theology. You can't avoid the theological question of who is this God I'm speaking to? Who is this God who is addressing me, who is mindful of me and I want to become mindful of? So prayer and theology are so much bound together um, for me. You can't really do one without the other. Absolutely. Bishop Graham Tomlin, thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Thank you so much, Sean. Great to be with you. Well, I'm always inspired uh, whenever I, I hear Bishop Graham. And if you want a thoughtful book, Being Yourself, uh, Being Yourself in Christ and Learning to Love God, Love Others and Love Yourself, then uh, pick up a copy of this. Hope that's inspired you. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.